All right, so we're on to the next topic in our apologetics class, which is Judaism. And, you know, one of the fun things about doing Judaism, as opposed to some of these other religions, is the opportunity that when we're looking at back at the history, we get to actually go to the Bible. So that's kind of fun. Um, rather than history books and running through all of that, we can actually look through the scriptures for, for what happened, you know, who these people are, where they came from, and then go from the Bible then to all the way through modern day. Um, so if we take a look at our little chart that we've had the last few times, uh, you'll notice that down there toward the bottom of this, I think it's number 13 on the list, is Orthodox Judaism with about 7 million uh, adherents in 2022. Uh, now, one of the difficulties is when we talk about Jews, are we talking about people of a certain religion, Judaism, or are we talking about ethnicity, Jews? So sometimes, as, you know, what, when we're talking about in this particular list, it's talking about the religion, and it's talking specifically about Orthodox Judaism. So there certainly would be more people than that who would consider themselves Jews, and there would be more than that who would adhere to some sort of Judaism. But the most, the most common here we see is Orthodox at 7 million. Okay, so that's an issue. Are we talking about religion or ethnicity? We're going to be primarily talking about religion because we're talking about witnessing to people who believe in Judaism as a religion. All right, so if you look at basically Jewish belief, here's how it would break down broadly. You would have religious Jews and secular Jews. And then under the religious, the main branches, we'll talk more about this later, the main branches would be reform, conservative, and orthodox. Um, so we're, we're going to be focusing here on the left branch, um, witnessing to uh, religious Jews, so some form of Judaism, reform, conservative, or orthodox Judaism. Uh, so we could say a, a Pew Research Center study from 2021 found that of the Jews in the U.S., 4.2 million identified by religion, 1.5 by, by something else. It's not a religion. They're talking about ethnicity or something like that instead. Uh, it was found among the U.S. Jews that only 28% said religion was very important in their lives, while 42% considered being Jewish very important. So again, when you ask somebody you know, and they say they're a Jew, are they talking about the religion or something else? Um, and then here's an idea of just the world population. So if we're talking of more of an ethnic idea here, there's probably about 15 million people. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be ethnic. I guess the way to classify this would be if someone considers themselves a Jew. So if you were to ask that question, whether it's on a religious basis or not, there's approximately 15 million, I think this study's from two years ago, 15 million Jewish population in the world and you could see, if we could read these numbers, they're a little small maybe for you. 6.9 million in Israel, 6 million in the U.S. Those are the main two uh, populations. And then various numbers in other countries there. So you put it together, about 15 million who would consider themselves Jews. Again, not necessarily on religion. So Pew Research Center writes this. <clears throat> U.S. Jews do not have a single uniform answer to what being Jewish means. When asked whether being Jewish is mainly a matter of religion, ancestry, culture, or some combination of these things, Jews respond in a wide variety of ways, with just one in ten saying it's only a matter of religion. Many American Jews prioritize cultural components of Judaism over religious ones. 
Most Jewish adults say that remembering the Holocaust, leading a moral and ethical life, working for justice and equality in society, and being intellectually curious are essential to what it means to them to be Jewish. Far fewer say that observing Jewish law is an essential part of their Jewish identity. Indeed, more consider having a good sense of humor to be essential to being Jewish than consider following traditional Jewish law <coughs> as essential. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, this, this contrasts, though, with, like, if you were to ask Orthodox Jews, um, those who follow Orthodox Judaism, 40% would say that it's mainly about the religion. Okay. 83% would say that observing traditional Jewish law is essential to what it means to be a Jew. And 75% say they find much meaning and fulfillment in their religion. Okay, so that just gives you kind of an idea if we're using that word or we're asking people and you just say, what does it mean when someone says they're Jewish? There's different, different uh, things they could mean. But we're going to zero in and focus on really what it means to be following Judaism. Okay, um, So we're talking about following Judaism here. We're going to, um, here's, a, here's a statement here I wanted to read. From Hop, from his book, Religions of the World. He says, the religious practices among Jews differ widely. Generally, the unifying feature among all Jews is a belief in the oneness of a God who works in and through historical events and who has in some manner chosen the Jewish people as agents. Around this basic principle, Judaism is built. Okay, and in particular, um, Deuteronomy 6 is a really important passage. The so-called Shema is a very important passage for Judaism. Okay, um, they continue. Uh, Dean Halverson writes, it is best to use the term Judaism to refer to the religion of the rabbis that developed from about 200 BC onward and crystallized following the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So we're going to go through the history, but there's, the, the terminology is they kind of make a separation between biblical Judaism and what they call rabbinical Judaism. Because if you go back and you're looking at the Old Testament and you're reading the books of Moses and you're reading about the sacrifices and you're reading about the priesthood and you're reading about the temple, well, there's no more temple. There's no more priests, there's no more temple, there's no more sacrifices to do what that requires. So they can't really do what you would call biblical Judaism. So then it's turned into something after that, which is what he's alluding to here, that came from the rabbis after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So, there's re- so that's really the form of Judaism that we're talking about now. It's this rabbinical Judaism not really being able to completely do what's described in uh, the books of Moses. <clears throat> All right, so let's take a look at the history. And you, you can open your Bibles if you want to uh, follow along here. We're going to go through and go through the history here of the Jewish people and, and basically the religion with it. So, anybody know, where would we start? I mean, I guess we could start in the beginning. <laughs> but if we want to start with the people who, where the Jews are going to come out of, what do you think? A little before Exodus. Abraham, yeah, good answer. We'll start with Abraham, right? Or maybe Abraham's uh, family. So the end of chapter 11, Genesis 11, is a good place to start. 11... 27, and this kind of gives us the setup. So let's read this together. Genesis eleven twenty-seven says, These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, 
the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So here's a picture on the map, this orange circle over here. So here's, here's Egypt, right? Here's Syria, and you have Israel, and this will eventually be in this area. So here's where they're coming from, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is like Babylon area. And they go up to Haran. I don't know if you can see the orange picture on the, the orange line on the map. That's where they travel. And then the orange line down this way. So they go from Ur to Haran, and they're going to come south uh, to Canaan. That's the path that they're following. Um, you know, one thing interesting about this passage, we're not going to spend much time on it, but it, it is interesting that it talks about Terah. And then you go to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so, it's, if you kind of read through, you're like, was he, did he tell it to Terah or did he tell it to Abram? Because it almost seems like Terah's moving already before that. And then you've got him talking to Abram in 12.1. Um, so there's a few different views on this, but uh, one of the views that, that seems most reasonable to me is that actually 12.1's backtracking a little bit. So you know how in Genesis 1, the creation's covered. And then in Genesis 2, it backtracks to the creation of the man and the woman. It gives you more detail. So one view of this that makes sense is that the end of Genesis 11 is more of an overview of here's what's happening. And then 12 is going back and talking about when God spoke to Abram, which is before uh, 1131, before they started moving. It was after God talked to Abram. So the, the argument here would be that actually Abram received the word from God first, which we see in chapter 12. Then the family left Ur to go to Canaan. Chapter 11, verse 31, they traveled to Haran. Terah died. Abram continued with Lot. Uh, but it's an interesting thing when you, when you read it, because it's like, well, why were they moving already if God hadn't spoken to Abram yet? But I think that's happening beforehand. So, and you'll notice in um, verse 4, in chapter 12, it speaks of them leaving from Haran, not from Ur. So you see that that's already... They're already at Haran by that point in chapter 12. So we have, we've, we were, um, this, this isn't talking about uh, the beginning there. This is picking up now. It's saying, well, he, Abram received the word from God. At this point, they're in Haran. Now they're continuing. Um, so we note that Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans. That, we see that on the map in the Babylonian area. This was a place where they worshiped the moon god. And um, so what, what did God call Abram to do? We can read that in verse 12. So this would be like the beginnings of the promises of the covenant that God's going to make with Abraham. Chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. Somebody want to read that for us? Anybody got a loud voice who can read that? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, thank you. <clears throat> all right, if we keep going, we go to Genesis 15. Uh, God reveals a little bit more about the covenant in Genesis 15. He reveals that uh, Abram will have a son who will be his heir, right? And then God actually... Um, he actually institutes, he cuts the covenant in verses 13 to 21 in chapter 15. 
So he goes through that process where he's really the one that walks through the parts of the animal um, because it's, it's, a, it's a one-sided covenant. He's, he's the one who's going to fulfill um, this no matter what Abram does. Okay, then we come to Genesis 17. God reveals more about the covenant here. Uh, 17, 1 to 10. He says he's going to make the covenant between me and you, and you see some of the same things. I may multiply you greatly. He says, you'll be the father of a multitude of many nations, and your name shall be Abraham. So now he gets renamed to Abraham. He'll be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations. Kings shall come from you, and I'll give you the land of Canaan, he says in verse 8. And then the sign of circumcision um, is given at that point. Okay, so we can just basically take those passages, those are some of the big ones, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and put together what the promises are that God has made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. He's promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. He's promised to bless him and make his name great. He's promised to bless those who bless Abraham, curse those who curse Abraham. He's promised to bless all the families of the earth in him, which the New Testament tells us is through Christ, right? Christ came through... Uh, through those people, right? And then he brought salvation to all, all the peoples of the earth. So bless all the families through Jesus. God promises to give his descendants the land of Canaan and give him a son as an heir and offspring as numerous as the stars. Now, one thing interesting, if you look at the chapter 15, verse 13 to 16, he also promises basically what's going to happen before the exodus he says to abram know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and so this is talking about what they're going to experience in egypt and then they're going to be he's going to bring them out of egypt they're going to come with many possessions well you remember the egyptians gave them all these Things to get out of here, here, take this, gave them treasure, gave them stuff. They left with many possessions. So God told Abram ahead of time, this is going to happen. Okay, well, let's just keep going. If we uh, go through the story, Abraham and Abram and Lot end up separating. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, um, 18 and 19. Uh, Abram move, Abraham moves to Gerar, then they move to Beersheba. Isaac is born, and then God renews the covenant with Isaac. Genesis 26, 3 to 5. So what he, the promises he made to Abraham are now going to be made and carried through to Isaac, his son. He tells Isaac in Genesis 26, similar language, I will be with you and will bless you and you and your offspring, uh, to you and your offspring, I will give these lands. I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And then, you know, after that, uh, Jacob, Esau, they're born. Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Genesis 28, God continues the covenant with Jacob. Genesis 28, 13 to 15. Okay, he says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So you see similar language again. God's renewing the covenant with Jacob now. Well, Jacob, if you know his story, he goes on. He actually ends up back in Haran. That was where originally 
Abraham and stuff moved. They went to Haran and they continued south. Well, he ends up going back up to Haran, where Laban or Laban is. And you know that story. He works, uh, he serves there for some 20 years. God ends up calling him out of there. He leaves. He has that, that experience where he's wrestling with God and he gets renamed to Israel. That's really, so that's really where this name Israel is coming from. Okay, Israel actually begins as a man, but out of him is going to come the nation. So it ends up being a man and a nation. God restates the Abrahamic covenant through Jacob, Genesis 35. He renames him at this point and says, Israel shall be your name. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So he's continuing those promises. And then um, Jacob makes it back to his father Isaac in Hebron. Isaac dies, and Jacob continues to live in the land of Canaan. And then he has all those sons, right? So Jacob has Rebekah, Leah, and then the, those wives' servants, Zilpah and Bilhah. And through all four of these women, he has these many, many sons. And it's, it's 11 at first with Joseph, right? And then eventually there's going to be Benjamin, who's going to be the 12th. Um, so we keep going through the story of Genesis, and we come then to Joseph after Jacob, one of the sons um, the favorite son, because he's the son of Rachel, who is the favorite wife. And all, and all the ones before him were from other women. So Joseph was the first one that came from Rachel. So he was the favorite. And, and you know, he was treated that way. And the other sons, the brothers, were jealous. Right? They, they tried to kill him. They decided in the end not to kill him. And instead they sell him into slavery. So what does that result in? He gets sold into slavery, but what's God doing with that? Preserving the people by bringing them where? Where does he end up? He ends up in Egypt, right? So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and then he's working for Potiphar, and then that whole thing happens with the false accusations. He ends up in prison, and then, well, God uses that too, because what happens in prison is he encounters that baker and the cupbearer of the Pharaoh. He interprets their dreams for them correctly. One of them dies, according to the dream. He does, it becomes true, and he dies, and the other one's restored. And then it, it's... It's some years later when he remembers, oh yeah, Joseph interpreted my dream correctly in prison. when I was in prison. So when Pharaoh has this dream that nobody can interpret, this guy remembers, there was this guy in prison with me and he was able to interpret our dreams correctly. Go get him. And so Pharaoh brings, uh, brings uh, Joseph out and basically this is, gen- we're now into uh, what Genesis uh, 40, 41, right? Pharaoh says, can we find one? Yeah. Um, Genesis 40. And so he's going through. <clears throat> he comes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Anybody tell me what the dream is about? What was the, what was the gist of the dream? Seven years of good and then seven years of famine. Prepare for the seven years of famine, right? So Pharaoh says, well, I'm going to put you in charge <laughs> So he puts Joseph in charge. Joseph basically becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt to oversee them preparing for the famine. So it's amazing what God does here, right? I mean, he takes, he takes him and he's using all these things to bring Joseph to that point where he went from being you know, a brother, a youngest brother among all of them to then being in prison, forgotten about. And now suddenly he's in charge of most of Egypt. So he makes all those preparations and then God uses that to bring the rest of the family over. 
Right? So you know the story where the brothers come, they're looking for food because of the famine, and then there's the whole thing where he ends up eventually revealing who he is, and then they go back and they, they bring uh, Benjamin, they bring, and then they bring Jacob, and then the end result is that God brings them all over to Egypt, right? and they live in the land of Goshen. So God brings all of them over there, and this is where he's forming the nation. Right? He's made this promise he's going to form the nation. And you could, you know, as you read through this, you see it happening. He's bringing all of them in there. Now all the brothers are together in that area. And you know, they, they start having families, kids, and the nation is starting to come about. And so when you, by the time we're in Exodus, now we're talking you know, hundreds of years have passed. God told Moses it was going to be some 400 years of, of, of time in Egypt. And so by the time we get to Exodus 1... They tell you who the sons are. They tell you Joseph was in Egypt. Joseph died. His brothers and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and great, increased greatly, multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And by now the Egyptians had forgotten about Joseph and they were afraid of how numerous the Israelites were becoming. So they enslaved them. And that's uh, basically how the setup goes for uh, Exodus. But here, here comes the nation. It's starting to come. And then in Exodus, God's going to bring them out and bring them to the land, right? That's the whole thing. These are the promises that he made to Abraham. He's going to bring them out of the land, bring them out of Egypt into this land, and he's going to build a people out of them. So um, 10 plagues on Egypt, right? He, so he sends Mo, he, God reveals himself to Moses, tells Moses who he is, calls Moses to go to Pharaoh, and tell him that God says to release his people, and Pharaoh doesn't. God sends these plagues. The plagues are really showing that God is the one true God, because if you really look into the details of each of the plagues, it's showing that these various gods that the Egyptians had have no power. One of their gods was the Nile, for example, and uh, turning the Nile to blood was showing that God had power over the Nile, not their god of the Nile. And if you go through each one of the plagues that were brought, they each show that God is over these things that their supposed gods were supposed to be in control of. It's showing that they can't do anything. They're helpless. God is the one true God. So there was a specific reason for these specific plagues. <clears throat> so he brings the 10 plagues. Uh, by the way, this is all around 1446 BC. If you're trying to keep track of like on a, on a, you know, where we are in the history we're in the 1400s BC, mid-1400s BC at this point. He wipes out Pharaoh's army, splits the Red Sea, brings the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And then at Mount Sinai, God gives his people the law, including the Ten Commandments, right? Which is recorded in Moses' five books. Now, the five books of Moses, this is huge to Judaism, right? So they call it the Torah, and uh, that, that's, that's the law, right? The law for them, the Ten Commandments and the law that was given, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, some call it, the Jews call it the Torah. So it would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books that are written by Moses <coughs> are very important because that's where they get their law from. Uh, Hopf writes, the legal material in the Pentateuch became the single most important part of the Bible for Judaism. It is to this material that Jews have turned for centuries, looking for inspiration and guidance. It became the basis for later the Mishnah and Talmud, which we'll talk about, 
which in turn became central for Judaism. It is at this point that Judaism is defined as a religion of the law and Jews as a people primarily concerned with obeying the laws of God. After Moses, Joshua leads Israel. They actually enter the land. They conquer the land. They get, receive most of the land that was promised. But then, you know, through the time of Judges, we have a downward spiral. Um, kings are instituted after Judges, first of whom is Saul. And then God chooses a king who's described as after his own heart, David. And God makes a covenant with David. Second Samuel 7. God promises to make a great name for David, a place for his people, rest from his enemies, and to establish his throne forever. Because of all the blood he had shed, God does not allow David to build a temple for him, but he allows Solomon to do it. So around 957 BC, Solomon builds the temple. So now we have this temple, the place of worship, the place for the sacrifices, not just the tabernacle any longer, uh, but there's a temple that's built and the Ark of the Covenant is brought there. The priests serve there. Animal sacrifices are made. So that whole sacrificial system uh, via the priesthood is occurring at the temple. All right. Any questions so far? We're kind of going fast, but you probably know this stuff. We're just kind of recapping. All right. 922 B.C. The nation becomes divided, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And you'll remember in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that God warns, here are all the blessings if you obey the covenant, and here are the curses if you don't. And among the curses were, while their, their land wouldn't be fruitful, they would be attacked by enemies, there would be diseases, and ultimately the curse was you will be taken out of the land and you will be scattered. That was the ultimate of what would happen. And that's exactly what happened. So as you read through the kings and you read about all these unfaithful kings, one after another, almost all of the kings were unfaithful and falling into idolatry. All the ones in Israel were. Only a handful in Judah were faithful. Uh, so at the end, God does what he promised. He sends Assyria and uses Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom in 722. And then they exile and scatter most of the people, uh, deporting them to Assyria. So most of the people from the northern kingdom are now scattered about and no longer in that area of Israel, Samaria. Unfortunately, Judah learned little from what happened with her sister nation because she didn't really follow God either. She didn't really heed the prophets. And so uh, not too much longer later, maybe a, a little bit over 100 years later, um, she would be conquered and exiled as well, this time at the hands of Babylon. And this process began in 605, and it continued until 586. So we usually call 586 the date of the exile of Judah. It happened in various waves, actually. So I've not really been using this slide, so <laughs> somewhere here. Yeah, here we go. So this was, these are the three waves. So Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, began the conquest of Jerusalem, the deportation of captives, among them Daniel. In uh, December 598, he again besieged Jerusalem. So you had 605, you have 598. On 597, he took possession. He took captive Jehoiachin and a group of 10,000, including Ezekiel, 
and the final destruction of Jerusalem and the conquest of Judah, including the third deportation, came in 586 B.C. So now most of the people from Judah are taken out of the land and scattered. God's judgment for their unfaithfulness. Uh, The captivity in Babylon would last for 70 years. God told Jeremiah, he wrote that down in Jeremiah 25. So they're in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Then something very significant happens. In 539, Cyrus of Persia overthrows Babylon. Okay, this is right before, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar's descendant has the cups from the temple and they're having their party and God does this very amazing, strange thing where he sends a hand, like a disembodied hand that writes, right, writes and, and declares judgment on uh, Belshazzar. And then the very next day, they're conquered. And so Babylon falls, Persia takes over, and uh, God uses Persia and Cyrus to bring about something amazing. Uh, in 538, the next year, God works in Cyrus's heart to start bringing Israelites back to the land. And you read this in Ezra 1. It says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And the proclamation was basically to allow the Jews to start going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding. So this came in three waves. Uh, 538 Zerubbabel, as recorded in Ezra, then Ezra, as also recorded in Ezra. In 548 B.C., then Nehemiah in 445, and they began rebuilding the temple. They finished it by 516. So now the temple that had been destroyed by Babylon is rebuilt. So this would be called the second temple. So we come into the second temple period, which is basically uh, the time of the new temple remained. So it's, it's fixed now, it's rebuilt, and it's going to remain until A.D. 70. Until Rome's going to destroy the... It's going to get renovated by Herod, and then eventually Rome's going to tear the whole thing down except the Western Wall. Um, so this is called the Second Temple Period, from its restoration in 516 until A.D. 70, when it's destroyed. There is some overlap. I think I left this graphic on... I think it's on your paper, not on here. Uh, there's, there's some overlap between that period and the intertestamental period, which is from 400 B.C. with the completion of the Old Testament to Christ's coming. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of overlap between those uh, timelines there. And so what happens? There's, there's a time of relative peace uh, for the Jews for a couple hundred years there under Persian rule. And then uh, things start to change here a little bit. Um, so... Hophrites, because they were separated by great distances from the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews of the diaspora, those who've been scattered, developed the institution of the synagogue as a local center for prayer and study. The English word for synagogue is derived from the Greek word synagogue, which means assembly. And then they have these rules for when you could have, an, have a synagogue. Uh, but basically, this is somewhere in here is where synagogues start to develop as, as a new thing. Synagogues and rabbis. So Halverson writes, uh, notes here, from 200, around 200 BC onward, new institutions and ways of life, life developed that distinguished rabbinic Judaism from the religion of ancient Israel. New institutions arose, such as the synagogue, uh, the yeshiva, I don't know how to say that, but relig- which are religious academies to train rabbis, and then the office of rabbi. So this is starting to make its way toward what's going to become what we call rabbinic Judaism. 
With the destruction of the temple in 586 BC, the synagogue became the place of education and worship for the Jews in exile. Since the majority of Jews did not return to Palestine after the exile, some returned, but most did not, synagogues continued to function in the diaspora and also became established in Palestine even after the reconstruction of the temple by Zerubbabel in 516 BC. So this is how all these things are in place when you, you, know, you read in the New Testament in Jesus' time and there's synagogues and there's rabbis and there's all these. Well, this is when those things are starting to come about. Uh, this is also when the Old Testament scriptures were completed a little, a little before the 200, but during this intertestamental period, Malachi had been finished, and so the Old Testament scriptures were completed, and we had the Hebrew Bible, which they call the Tanakh. It consists of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and then the prophets and the writings. You probably can't read that. <laughs> That's pretty small. But basically, if you, if you compare the Hebrew Bible to our Old Testament, it's the same but not in the same order. So there are fewer books uh, because they do things like they, they usually combine First and Second Samuel. They combine First and Second Kings. They combine First and Second Chronicles. Uh, they combine the minor prophets. It's, it's called the Twelve. There's one book called the Twelve. And so when you look at the count, I think there's... Uh, in some versions, there's 22 books in the Hebrew Bible. In some, there's 24. Uh, how many do we have? 30. 39 in the Old Testament. So we've got 39. They have 22 to 24. But it's all the same books, just a little bit different order. If you were able to see that, you could see the order. But it's, it's not terribly important. Continuing on, 332 BC, Alexander the Great comes along and the Greeks now defeat Persia. So Persia kicked out Babylon. Here come the Greeks. The Greeks kick out Persia. A lot of this stuff is, is talked about in Daniel. It was, it was prophesied that this was going to happen. So there are some references I've put there that you can read along in Daniel as it talks about that these things were going to happen. Um, so Alexander dies. His empire is divided among his generals and the What's happening here with, uh, with the Jews? Well, you have Judah. Judah was the name of the nation. In, in Greek, it becomes Judea, which is kind of like the area of the Jews. So you'll see Judea, right? It's basically Judah, Judah, Judea. Uh, it, so it falls under rule of Ptolemy, the Ptolemies, who were some of the generals un, under Alexander. And then it's there for a while under them. And then it passes and, and it falls under the next group, the Seleucids, and during this time, around 200 BC, several different religious groups start to emerge with different theological views. So you'll see on your paper, these groups that start to emerge should sound familiar. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes are some of the groups. A little bit later would be the Zealots. Okay? And, and you know we read about especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament. Yeah, there was a hand up. I haven't talked about the revolt yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, are you talking about the... So... Yeah, when you mentioned the revolt, and that's how we came about with the rabbis and the rabbinical 
Uh, not a revolt. No, there'll be a revolt later of Israel, of Judah revolting against those in power. That's, but I wasn't talking a revolt. So, okay, so, so if we go back to Babylon conquers Judah and destroys the temple. After Persia takes over Babylon, Ezra, Zerubbabel, people like that are allowed to go back and lead waves of Jews back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Okay, but during this period, many of the people don't return. Most of the people don't return. Well, they can't go to the temple. Right? So either the temple was destroyed or even when it's rebuilt, they are not moving back to Jerusalem. So you have Jews living in, in all these different areas, Babylonia, Syria, where they've been scattered, and they don't have a temple to go to to worship. So that's where the, the synagogues and the rabbis and all this starts to develop. It gives them a way to be taught to do their worship without being at the temple. Now, is that according to what the Old Testament tells them to do? No, right? Because if they're trying to follow what Moses wrote, then it's the sacrifices and it should be at the temple and all that. So it doesn't, it doesn't exactly match that. But for practical reasons, they're so far away, that's how that developed. So it wasn't out of a revolt of anything yet. It was just a fact of being far away from the temple or not having a temple. Like even right now, today, there's no temple. So what would Jews do today? Same kind of thing. Synagogues, teachings, rabbis, right? But they can't actually go to the temple to the priests to give the sacrifices like, like actually the Torah says. They can't actually do it. And that's why there would be a separation by what we would call biblical Judaism versus rabbinical. Because, yeah, it's not. And, you know, I, I remember I had a Jewish friend who I asked about it and kind of his attitude, he would have been what we'd call orthodox. His attitude was kind of like, it's the best we can do. <laughs> Which is interesting because, you know, um, a lot of times the, the Jewish view is you really have to follow the law very carefully. But for them, it's like it's the best we could do. Uh, and I guess their rabbis are telling them it's acceptable. And because they end up taking the writings of the rabbis and everybody as equal or above the scripture, then if they say it's okay, then it's good, right? So, so it becomes the tradition that's, that's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I mean, and that's a point you could bring up to somebody who's in Judaism. Well, you can't even actually do what the Torah calls you to do. So how, yeah, so is God going to accept that <laughs> if you're not doing, doing what, you're, what you actually should be doing according to the Torah? Okay, so where are we here? So they've rebuilt it, Alexander. Okay, so after that, Alexander, Greeks conquered Persia for a while, uh, Judas under the Ptolemies, then under the Seleucids. And now, uh, again, somewhere in here around the 200s, we're not exactly sure, um, but it says the Ptolemies ruled over Judah from 300 to 200. So somewhere in there at the later part of that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees started to emerge. Um, so I'll just mention a couple things about them. I mean, you read about them a lot. The Pharisees, it means the separated ones. There could be different things they're talking about there of what they're separating from. Um, they accept all of the Old Testament as authoritative versus the Sadducees. Who, don't, who only accept the first five books. You'll remember that uh, some of the New Testament talks about some differences. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees do, right? 
Um, the Sadducees didn't believe in demons or angels or an afterlife. And uh, so, but who were they? The Sadducees were the, basically the party of the wealthy and the priestly families, and they were in charge of the temple and all temple activities. While the Pharisees were the ones who accepted all the Old Testament, they developed the oral tradition, the teachings, they believed in angels, demons, and resurrection, they controlled the synagogues, and they had the greatest influence over the people. So you can think of the Sadducees had more influence in terms of uh, leading the temple and politics. They were more involved in politics. And the, the Pharisees were more involved with the people, not with politics so much. So the synagogues and the people. And then there were the Essenes. Um, probably they came about around the same time. Uh, they were an ascetic group. They were devoted to study and copying manuscripts of the law. And many of them lived in Qumran near the Dead Sea. And that's where you've heard of them when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a group of Essenes or related to the Essenes. Uh, that's what that area was. It was their area with their manuscripts for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, back to 198 BC. Now under the rule of the Seleucids, uh, Judah is. And then one of their leaders, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes in 170 BC, defiles and plunders the temple. In 167, he orders the Hellenization, or basically Greek is making into Greek, of Palestine. So he's trying to make the Jews blend in, be absorbed, assimilate into the Greek culture. He forbids the Jews from keeping their laws, from observing the Sabbath, from doing their festivals, from offering sacrifices, from circumcising their children. And he, try, he tries to force unclean sacrifices and eating of pork. So this unsurprisingly leads to a revolt. So this is, the, this is where the revolt comes into play. The Maccabean Revolt. An old priest named Mattathias and his five sons lead a resistance against Antiochus and his successors. After Mattathias dies, his son Judas Maccabeus becomes the leader. He defeats the armies and regains control of the temple. This is what is celebrated at Hanukkah. So the, the Jewish holiday Hanukkah that's celebrated is, it's not, from, it's not a scriptural holiday, but it's based on this, these events that happened uh, between the Old and the New Testament, right? So they, they fought against, the, against um, Antiochus and his armies. They took back control of the temple. They dedicated and cleansed the temple. And that's what the Hanukkah celebrates. Uh, the story goes that they, while they were doing this rededication, they, were, they lit the, the lamp, the menorah in there, and that they only had one day's worth of oil, but it lasted for eight days. It miraculously lasted for eight days. Um, so that's why they do, the, do that in Hanukkah. Well, the war actually didn't end. The war continued for 24 years. In 142, the Jews gained their independence, and the descendants of that guy, Mattathias, they founded the Hasmonean dynasty, named after Hashmon, an ancestor of the Maccabees. Um, so, you know, you, in the, in the uh, Catholic Bibles where they have the Maccabees, that's what those books are talking about. So, so uh, you know, there's some good value, hi, valuable history in those books. They're not scripture, and there are some things that are wrong in those books, but it does give you some history of what was going on during this time. So it's useful as, as some history. No, their Bibles agree with ours. Yeah. Not in their Old Testaments, no.
Okay, so now you have the Hasmonean dynasty, which is, which is really in Jew, Jewish, uh, Jewish state is independent, but all wasn't well. Um, the Hasmoneans started taking over the offices of priests, even though they weren't in the right line. And the Hasmoneans began to follow Greek ways, which really is what they were against at first. But they started to become more uh, liberal with that, and Greek influence started to seep in. In 63 BC, Pompey of Rome took control of Israel during a dispute about the high priesthood. And I give you some Daniel references there. But basically, this is now Rome takes control. So we're getting very close to Jesus' time of coming, right? 60 BC, Rome has taken control now of Judah. Rome puts Herod in as king of Judah or Judea. He reigned from 37 to about 4 BC. And he was the king when Jesus was born. One thing he did was to build and expand the second temple. So he made it like more than double the size of what it was after it had been restored. Um, So he made this very spectacular um, renovations of the temple. Around then the zealots emerged who sometimes uh, engaged in terrorism opposing Rome. So that was the setting basically when Christ came into into the world. Right? He came in with Herod ruling. He came in with Rome over, over Judea and um, Pharisees and Sadducees, zealots, all these different groups. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were not exactly um, friendly necessarily with each other on these things, but they, they were able to unite in hating Christ. <laughs> so they had that in common. All right. So after Christ's life, death and resurrection... Uh, We're going to try to keep working our way up to modern day, or approximately. A.D. 66, the Jews revolted against the Romans in the first Jewish revolt. It was successful for a little bit, but eventually it failed, and General Titus came in to besiege Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and in the end, Jerusalem was destroyed. So that's the end of the temple. That's where we are in terms of what's there now. All that's left is that western wall of the temple. So there's no... No more temple since A.D. 70. Because there was no priesthood sacrifices anymore, biblical Judaism became impossible. So Judaism became what is called rabbinical Judaism, which is theoretically, uh, you know, it's supposed to, was supposed to have been based on the scriptures, but they can't do the sacrifices and the temple and all of that. The rabbis became the authorities who established various laws and practices with, that had normative authority. Um, One commentator writes, it forced the religion to develop in a new direction away from temple ritual, moving Judaism toward a focus on scripture and scripture interpretation. There was another revolt in 132. And then now you start to see, they said scripture and scripture interpretation. So they have the Hebrew Old Testament, but then what's going to become very, very important is all of the commentaries that the rabbis write about it. And that's going to become these other, other very important documents, collections um, for Judaism. So one of them, the first one, is a six-part collection called the Mishnah. Okay, so that began, you had various rabbis writing their thoughts. Um, there are a couple that, are, that uh, come up. Hillel and Shammai are two um, schools that were, that were going on. One was more liberal, one was more conservative. But how do they interpret the law? Um, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19, not them by name, but when he's talking about divorce, 
Uh, the, the liberal one, Hillel, his view was basically uh, uh, you could divorce your wife for anything. So that's where that question comes to Jesus about can you div- divorce your wife for, for any, just anything? And Hillel taught, well, you could divorce your wife for pretty much anything. If she burned, if she burned dinner, that was grounds for divorce if you wanted it. I'm not even making that up. That was, that's, that's true. That's one example. So Jesus was sort of addressing that. And Hillel, I think, I think he died like 20 years before Jesus', Jesus ministry began. So, so he was around the same time. So Jesus was encountering some of these teachings from Hillel or Shammai um, about what, how they interpreted the law. By AD 425, we're jumping ahead here a little to just, just talk about the development of the Jewish uh, literature. By AD 425, more interpretations, illustrations, and sermons were compiled called the Gemara. And then they combined the Gemara and the Mishnah, and that's what's called the Talmud. Okay, so it's a combination. There's actually two Talmuds. There's the Palestinian Talmud, and then there's the bigger one, which is the Babylonian Talmud. It's about three times as big as the other one. This is what most people are talking about when they talk about the Talmud. So it's a collection of all these things that have been written, all these, all these views on the law, interpretations, illustrations, sermons, and so on. Uh, Molloy writes, After the Hebrew Bible itself, the Babylonian Talmud became the second most important body of Jewish literature and continued to be commented on over the centuries by rabbinic specialists. Okay, uh, I'll just hit a couple highlights here to finish up the rest. Uh, in the Middle Ages, interest in mysticism popped up, so I just want to mention this. You could look at it more, but if you've heard of Kabbalah, that's where that starts around. Middle Ages, they, there was an interest in mysticism, and there were these Jewish writings called Kabbalah. Um, it, it, among the ideas in there is that the Hebrew Bible has, has a secret code in it. So you get numerology is a big thing in here. So each of the letters in the Hebrew, so you could take like in English, you could say A is one, B is two, C is three. And now I take a word like cat. Well, A is, C is, is three and A is one and I don't know what T is. And then you add them together and oh, that has a number and that must have a meaning. So it's this very bizarre mysticism. Um, I mean, just to give you an example, they, they took uh, Genesis 18 when the three angels meet Abraham right before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, right? Using the numbers for letters, the, these Kabbalists, as they're called, they took the phrase that says, Behold, three men stood in front of him, and they added all the letters together, and they got 701. But the numerical total of the names Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael is 701. So those are the three angels that were there. This is the kind of silly stuff. So... Just silly, looking for silly patterns from numbers that don't make any sense. Um, but that's, that's what, they, what they did. They also taught that evil doesn't exist. That which is called evil is just the negative side of good. So that almost reminds me of the yin-yang kind of ideas of just two, two things, right? So they don't really believe in evil. Uh, so that's Kabbalah. Um, yeah, one of the appeal was during this time... Uh, as we start and, and moving on from this time to the 15th century, is a lot of Jews were facing persecution in Europe, and they were getting expelled from different countries, and they were getting um, persecuted, and so it was appealing to grab onto anything that might help, give them some hope, or give them some help. So there was some there was some appeal of of Kabbalah and and the things that it, that it was you know they'd be looking for these magical clues that would lead them to the Messiah and to salvation. 
Um, so they were willing to grasp onto things like that, looking for hope. Most of Europe had become Christian by the 15th century, and in many places, Jews faced persecution. They were forced to wear special caps in some places or display identifying details. They were sometimes forced to live in sections, separate sections of towns called ghettos, which could even be walled in at night to keep Jews separate from everyone else. Beginning in the late Middle Ages, European Jews were forced into exile. And over a period of 200 years, they were expelled from England, France, Spain, and Portugal. As a result of the Spanish Inquisition, Jews fled to Morocco, Egypt, Greece, Turkey, Holland, Central Europe, and the New World. So again, you're seeing a scattering, but this is why on that map I showed there's Jews in many, many different countries across the world. In the 15th and 16th centuries, with the Renaissance and the rise of the modern world, Judaism started to split toward toward a more traditional view versus the modernized, or you could say liberal view. And by the 18th century, we got three branches, Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative, uh, which I alluded to earlier, became the three main branches of Judaism. Okay, what are the differences? So a couple things on these. Did I give you details on those, or did I just list them? Just listed them. Okay, so Orthodox Judaism would be traditional, you could call it traditional or Torah Judaism. Um, it was the only, basically the only form of Judaism until the, the Enlightenment and the liberal forms started to happen. So there was, there was Orthodox, then came the Reform, which was the liberal, and then conservative kind of jumped in between and said, we'll be the middle ground. So that, that's what you're looking at here. Um, Orthodox seeks to preserve classical or traditional Judaism, emphasizes tradition, strict observance of the law as interpreted by the rabbis. It would include dietary restrictions, uh, certainly, and observance of the Sabbath. In their synagogues, men and women would sit separately. Only men can be rabbis. Services are conducted in Hebrew. Um, one branch is Hasidism. So if you're familiar with that branch of uh, Judaism, that would be an Orthodox Judaism. But if you go to the Reform, that's going to be uh, a liberal form of Judaism. Uh, it began in Germany in the Enlightenment, 18th century. They attempted to modernize what they thought were outmoded ways of thinking and doing. It emphasizes ethics and precepts, tries to make worship more accessible. This sounds familiar. Uh, they declared that in 1843, the Talmud has no authority for the modern Jew. They said, we seek no Messiah and we know no homeland but the land of our birth. They don't emphasize the kosher laws so much. They call their synagogues temples. Men and women can sit together. Women can be rabbis. And the services are offered in native language as well as Hebrew. So that would be the more liberal view. And then right in the middle comes the conservative Judaism. They, they came about in the 19th century. And... Um, Almost half of all practicing Jews in the U.S. would be considered conservative Jews. They started a Jewish theological seminary of America in New York City, which is basically the voice of this branch of Judaism in the U.S. Okay, with the forming of the U.S. and more freedoms for Jews in Western Europe, many who faced persecution in Eastern Europe fled. Many Jews left Russia and Poland from 1880 to 1920, more than a million Jews came to the U.S., mostly to New York. And that continues to be the biggest area in the U.S. for Jewish population. Uh, others came to Montreal, Toronto, Mexico City, Buenos Aires. 
In 1900, a movement called Zionism began, which is basically uh, the goal was to create a place for Jewish people to live, a state, a nation. Um, Because at this point, they're all scattered all over, right? There is no Israel like there is right now. At the end of World War I, the Palestine area came under British rule, and the British Foreign Secretary made a statement that England favored the creation of a national home for Jewish people. So the idea started uh, along the lines of what the Zionism was pushing for, the idea of maybe creating a state for the Jews to live in. And this would end up happening after World War II. In 1933, Adolf Hitler rose to power in Germany, and, he, and he, he turned Germany into an anti-Jewish Nazi dictatorship. He saw Germans as part of a superior Aryan race and Jews as subhuman, and he blamed them for uh, supposedly conspiring against Germany and causing Germany to lose the First World War. And at first, it started with pressure to force the Jews to leave. They were reduced to second-class citizens, They were not allowed to vote, hold office, work in most professions, couldn't marry non-Jews, forced out of governments and university positions, businesses were boycotted, and so many were just, they were just trying to force them out to emigrate, to leave. Many came to the United States and other places, um, such as Albert Einstein, but the reality is there were immigration restrictions in the United States and other places, so only so many were allowed to come. And then as the Nazis began to spread across Europe in 1939, they started um, not just persecuting, not just trying to force out, but actually murdering the Jews. They were, they were identified, made to wear yellow markings to identify that they were Jews, and eventually they started being sent to concentration camps, mostly in Poland. Molloy describes this awful scene. He writes, Upon arrival at the extermination camps, Jews were often divided into two groups, those who were strong enough to work and the rest, mostly women, children, sick, and elderly. They were killed immediately. At first, uh, those those interns there were shot to death, but as their numbers increased, gas chambers and crematoria were constructed to kill them and incinerate their bodies. Those who were kept as workers lived in horrible conditions and were routinely starved insufficiently clothed and attacked by all kinds of vermin and disease. Few ultimately survived. If you look at the estimates, by, night, uh, by the end of the war in 1945, it's estimated that 6 million Jews were killed, which would have been about a third of the population. And, you know, partially after all of that persecution and after all those horrors, I think that's part of, part of uh, helped the, the state of Israel come into existence not long after. Um, so it was uh, 1947, so a couple, just two years after the end of the war, the UN voted to divide Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state, and in 1948, the British left and Israel became a state. So Israel, they've been in, they were just in the news because there's been these bombings going on, right? But as a, Israel's existed now as a nation there since 1948. Okay, the very next day, they were attacked by five Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and Israel won the Arab-Israeli war and actually gained territory, and there have been battles going on and off for different parts of territory since then. As for Judaism's current state, Molloy writes, Jewish life today has two centers, Israel and the U.S. The estimated Jewish population of Israel is about 5 million Uh, Well, this was 2005. This is a little outdated. And the U.S. is about six. 
Uh, Judaism in the U.S. is largely liberal and enjoys freedom of practice. In Israel, Judaism presents a wide spectrum of opinions and practices ranging from liberal and even atheistic to highly conservative and traditionally religious. For perhaps a majority of the population, Judaism is more a culture than a religion. Okay, so that's kind of the history um, all the way from Abraham till now. Um, so what are some of the Jewish beliefs and practices? Um, we'll go through that and then compare, comparison to Christianity. Hopefully we can do that in the next 20 minutes or so. So there's no official Jewish creed, but there are some sets of beliefs that are central. So we mentioned one at the beginning, a belief in God as one, the creator, the all-knowing, formless God Creator, he's spirit, he's, he's creator and judge of the universe, he's loving, he's just, he's omnipresent, omniscient, right? So, so they, have a, they believe in one God, right? And so a very important verse for Jews is Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This should be a familiar passage for you. It's very important for the, for the Orthodox Jews who are doing their prayers, they'll recite this passage multiple times a day. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so that's called the Shema, which in, in Hebrew it says, Hear, O Israel. That's, here is Shema. That's the word. Um, so I think, the, I think the Jews would call it the, the Shema Yisrael, which is Hear, O Israel. It's the beginning of that verse 4. So that's one problem right away is, we, is our view, right, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit There'll be the accusation, like with some other religions, that were like, like uh, Islam, right? They would accuse us of three gods. And so Israel, right there, very important to them. They're very focused. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. There's only one. And then the history of idolatry um, that you read through the whole Old Testament, right? That Israel's uh, very sensitive to idolatry. And so that makes that a challenge right there. That we're, we're presenting Christ. And he's, you know, this idea of God is one. We have to explain um, how that works. Um, they believe in the words of the prophets that God gave the law to Moses, that the Messiah will come someday. And they believe in a resurrection of some sort in the world to come of some sort that varies. And they believe in a special purpose of the Jewish people that varies as well, what that purpose is. And so a lot of things you'll find for somebody who's, who's practicing Judaism is, well, things like certain uh, traditions, certain holidays, so I've given you some details here on the holidays. It's probably not really important that I spend time going through the details, but here are some of the most important holidays. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Sukkot, the, day, the Feast of Tabernacles. Hanukkah, which we mentioned earlier, celebrating the Maccabean victory. Uh, Purim, anybody remember where that's from? It's mentioned in the Bible. Esther, yep, right. In Purim, it recounts the, the uh, story of Esther, which was, was another example of somebody who was trying to annihilate the Jews, right? 
way before Hitler, we had, um, we had the Esther, and they survived an attempted genocide in Esther. Passover, and then the Feast of Weeks, uh, which would have been, we, would think, we would remember as Pentecost in the New Testament. So those are the holidays that, uh, and again, this is going to depend on how, you know, how, which of those kind of branches of Judaism the person falls into. The Orthodox Jew would probably follow most or all of these, right? So it depends on where they are, which ones are the most uh, common. The last one, the Feast of Weeks, is not as, not as commonly celebrated. Uh, there's some important life events or traditions um, that stand out in the Jewish culture. Circumcision for boys at eight days old. Uh, bar mitzvah, a coming of age ceremony for boys. Um, and then I, I think it's less traditional, but now there's often bat, bat mitzvahs, which are for girls, coming of age. Sorry? And then the Jewish weddings, um, there's some traditions they have, but they smash a glass and a cloth to symbol the dis- symbolize the destruction of the temple. That's what that's actually about. Commemorating the fall of Jerusalem. Jewish funerals, they mourn for seven days traditionally. And then in daily life, uh, here are some things um, to highlight. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is very important. Um, you get that reading the, the New Testament, right? The Sabbath was very important to the Jews in Jesus' time, and Jesus clashed with them over and over about the Sabbath. Um, so the Sabbath, they view it as a day of prayer and rest. Orthodox Jews will not work, drive, carry money, use a phone, or light a fire on the Sabbath. And it begins on Friday evening at sunset and continues to Saturday evening at, uh, on, um, at sunset. So starting from Friday to Saturday. And my neighbors that he won't he won't drive or anything. My neighbor, just, I'm sorry, just call That's right. Orthodox, he wears a, I've seen him. What was it? Uh, like a like a, 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 a hat? Is that kind of a hat? Mm-hmm. Cloth, with, uh, tail, tail, cloth, tail. I don't know. Pretty orthodox, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know they have the cap. The cap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the funny. I had I had a friend when I was in uh, when I was in graduate school in math graduate school. There were a lot of uh, international students and such. And one of the guys I knew was a Russian Jew, and he I think he was pretty orthodox. And we were friends. We were roommates for a while. And you know, I thought I was a Christian. The funny thing is, funny thing looking back is, I, I actually wasn't even a believer. I thought I was. And so we'd have discussions. And and he ended up I think going to. He was at least going to go to New York and go study to be a rabbi. But I remember encountering these kinds of things. And so he would do, the, you know, on Fridays he wouldn't be able to do certain things. One of them is he can't turn on a light switch. But he could leave it on Friday afternoon and then come into the room and benefit from the light. But he couldn't actively turn it on. Or, or I've seen that, like, you can buy um, an oven and the oven has a Sabbath feature. And the Sabbath feature is because you can't cook on the Sabbath, but you could time it and set it so that it turns on and cooks for you on the Sabbath. So, so, there's, you know, so there's workarounds to sort of like benefit from some of these things that you're not allowed to do, but you yourself can't do them. That's their whole business is to figure workarounds. Yeah. <laughs> Look at most of, a lot of New York City has a line that 
extreme. So oh, yeah. Because you're not supposed to leave your home. You're not supposed to go within, you know, it's work to travel a certain amount of time. Yeah. But even in Israel now, they raise pigs on the land, but they're not on the land. They're on a huge deck. So there's a huge acres of decking. Then the pigs aren't actually wow. on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're not on the land and they're being raped. Of course, you know, for meat, they're not selling it to the Jews or selling it to other people. But our sin that finds workarounds to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, of course, also the reality is that most of these things were made up traditions as Jesus confronted the, the Jewish religious leaders over. So most of these are made up anyway, but yeah, they're, they're finding workarounds, right? Yeah. Where, you, where you can say, well... Well, I think it mainly had to do with setting people apart, setting Israel apart as a nation from the other nations around them. But there may have been some health benefits. All right, so observing the Sabbath is a huge one. Um, prayers. Orthodox Jews pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening. The Shema Yisrael is the central affirmation of Judaism. It's recited as part of the morning and evening prayers, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. And I remember my friend, he would literally do, do, the, do the next things it says there, phylacteries, right? So, so again, if you read, I still have my Bible on Deuteronomy 6, 9, 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, some, so, so the, the mezuzahs mentioned where you can buy these rectangular boxes and put them on your doorposts so that you can do that. And then there's the phylacteries here. And this is, I remember my friend doing this. So he'd have these little boxes that have scripture in them. And then I think it's some kind of leather strap or some kind of strap. And he'd go off sort of in private to do these prayers on, on the Sabbath. And he'd be like attaching the box to his forehead and tying things around his arms as he's reciting these <coughs> prayers. So that's, that's the phylacteries there. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because, again, they're trying to very much follow what this says, literally. But then, you know, if you're doing that, what, what do you do in verse 6 when it says, These words that I command to you today, today shall be on your heart. I mean, if we're going to take all of this completely literally, put it on your forehead, put it on your hand, well, then how do you put it on your heart? You can't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, nobody does that. But, but yeah, it's, it's, so they're taking all of that, like... Too literally, and, and then not the other part. And then, of course, there's the dietary restrictions, uh, kosher, kosher law. So, All right, we're running low on time here. So I've got a table there with some comparisons of Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform Judaism compared to Christianity. Um, so, so some of the highlights, I would say their view of man. The orthodox view of man is that he's morally neutral with a good and evil inclination. My Jewish friend, I talked to him about this at one point. He actually said there is no Satan. There's just a good inclination and an evil inclination. So he denied that, that Satan even exists. Um, so good, this, they're talking about evil inclination here. Um, and then if you look at the more liberal views, basically that man's good or could be perfected through enlightenment or education. So, again, the, so their view of man is, is not the same. Uh, original sin. No original sin. Sin is breaking the commandments, uh, but there's no view of original sin. And salvation. Salvation 
They don't think there's anything to be saved from. Or in the case of the liberal views, salvation is bettering society and self. Um, but they believe basically you repent, you pray, and you observe the law to be in the right relationship with God. There's nothing that you need to be saved from. Um, the Orthodox Jew would believe in, a, in the Messiah as a non-divine human who will restore the Jewish kingdom and rule over the earth someday. So they would be anticipating a Messiah, but they would deny that he's God and that, of course, that he's Christ. And then the liberal views, I mean, some of them are just like, the Messiah is not even a person, it's an age, it's a utopia that we're progressing toward. Um, so, yeah, and then so, the liberal views, they don't really believe in a resurrection either or an afterlife, um, or sometimes they do, depending on, on where they're at. So the last section then, just some tips uh, in witnessing to a Jewish person. Um, so one thing, as, you've, as we just saw on the table, their view of sin and salvation and a savior is different. So we'd have, you really would have to go through and be clear what you're talking about. Um, because Jews tend to think of sinners as only like really bad evil people. You know, like those horrible people Jesus had dinner with. The, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those are sinners. But I'm not, right? So that's one thing we'd have to get through. That, well, we're all sinners, right? We all sin. And uh, so I put a few passages there, um, specifically Old Testament passages, because, you know, rather than giving them a New Testament passage, if they're going to deny the New Testament, let's take them to their own scriptures. So, like, for example, 1 Kings 8.46 says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 51.5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So it's talking about original sin. And Psalm 58 is talking about being estranged from the womb. So... Uh, so we'd want to establish the idea that sin is rebellion against God and we all are guilty, right? Not just the especially wicked people, but we're all enslaved to sin and separated from God until we come to know Christ. We're all under God's wrath until we come to Christ. And um, we could look at Exodus 34, uh, where God describes who he is, but he says he's not going to, he by no means clears the guilty. So he forgives sin, but he also doesn't clear the guilty. So how does that fit together? the so-called riddle of the Old Testament. How can God forgive sin and yet he still punishes sin? Well, we know the answer to that. We have the answer to that. It's Jesus. But how do they explain that? Right? So try to show your Jewish friend that he is a sinner and so are you, right? That we're all sinners. We, we can't keep God's law perfectly. Um, they would have to perfectly keep it and they can't. So you can talk about that as well. And that God can't just simply let sin pass. And then if you can... Get that, make that clear, then what salvation is becomes clearer, right? So if they don't come in with the idea of, of needing to be saved, well, if you can get through and show them through the scriptures that, well, we're all sinners, we're all under the wrath of God, well, now there is a need for salvation. Now you can explain what we're talking about. What does salvation mean? And, and uh, some, of the, some of the books I was reading suggested that, that even if, if they don't, they're not as liking of that word, you could use the word redemption. Or deliverance, because that's a good word for, for Jewish people because of Moses and the, and the redemption, right? And the exodus, the, the deliverance of the people. So you could talk about us needing to be redeemed, to be delivered, if they don't like the word salvation. Um, but it might help them understand more what you're talking about. Just as God redeemed his people from slavery in the exodus, he, can redeem, he redeems us from slavery to sin in Christ. And then... 
Savior. Emphasize Jesus as the promised Messiah in the line of King David who will save his people. Go back to the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, he's the one who is the one like Moses who was promised. And then use what common ground you can, like the Old Testament, right? Um, so use what common ground you can. You go to the Old Testament. Um, you can affirm a lot of things from the Old Testament that they would agree with. Use that as a starting point. Some suggestions are you could start talking about the Passover. We could start talking about patriarchs or Abraham or, or David, and that could be a way to start a conversation. Use scriptures like Matthew does, right? Uh, Matthew's writing to primarily Jews in the book of Matthew to convince the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. So that's a good place to go, right? Let's, let's, let's use Matthew because he's, he's making the same case. He's going to Old Testament scriptures and showing that Jesus fulfills these. So um, go to Matthew. You can look at some of these passages. I gave a few Old Testament passages. Uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. Psalm 110, Jesus uses, right? The Lord says to my Lord, right? And he uses that to show that the, the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but also God. He would also be Lord, and Isaiah 53, of course, is a very important chapter uh, that we could go to. But yeah, try to have your friend read Matthew. If he's willing to read it, read the book of Matthew. Uh, the next note, don't be surprised by heavy resistance uh, due to some past Christian or so-called Christian persecution of Jews. Uh, many Jews have a strong distaste for Christianity. Uh, this one author, Randy Newman, who, who's a Jew who became a believer, he, said, he wrote this, you're asking them to join Christianity may seem as alien or distasteful as asking them to join a local neo-Nazi party. So they could have some very strong anti-Christian views. Okay. Uh, my experience with my Orthodox Jew friend was at some point he wouldn't engage anymore. So I would ask him questions. I think I asked him, like, how do you... How do you do what, you're, what, what you think God wants you to do when you don't have a temple and you don't have sacrifices? Or I talked to him about various things like that. Or how do you believe there's no Satan? And after a while, what he ended up telling me, which is this is like the get away, the shrug you off, it's over. Uh, he basically said, it's not for me to ask. It's not for me to question. That's what he ends up, ended up saying eventually. So he didn't know the answers and he wasn't going to ask. And it's not so, so he tried to say it was, I guess, I guess he would be trying to say it's a matter of faith. But basically he wasn't, okay, it doesn't make sense. He doesn't know the answer, but he's, it's not his place to go ask the rabbi. So he didn't care. He didn't care. <laughs> yeah, that's where we ended up at that point. Um, yeah, common objections. Christianity is for Gentiles. How could we respond to that? First, Jesus is Jewish, right? Yeah. For the Jew first and for the Yeah. Yeah. Even in the Old Testament, we see the various times when Gentiles encounter as Jews, they follow God's law. So it's not just Christianity, it's God desires the nations to be saved. We saw glimmers of that in the Old Testament. Yeah, and that's what the Abrahamic covenant promised. He's going to bless all nations through Abraham. Yep. So if they want to dismiss it, um, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. But I kind of had a lady do that before a few years ago. We were doing like a, 
I forget if it was the Harvest Festival or VBS, and then she's just like, we're like, yeah, and we're, we're having this, and you know, we talk about Christ, and then she's like, I'm Jewish. Closes the door. So it's like, I'm a Jew. I don't care about Christ. I don't care about Christianity. It was, that was her act, reaction. It was kind of like Christianity is for someone else, you know? So, yeah. Um, which, of course, is silly because it's for all, everybody. <laughs> all right. Um, we just made it in the, in the nick of time. So any, any questions? Yeah, in the back. Messianic Jews. So some of these terms get a little fuzzy. My understanding of a Messianic Jew, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, I believe a Messianic Jew would be a Jew who says they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So you'd have to talk to that person to really figure out what that means because, they, for example, they could accept that Jesus is the Messiah but that he's not God. Because we were talking about the Orthodox Jews view that their Messiah is to come but their Messiah is not God. So if someone's a Messianic Jew, that doesn't mean they're a Christian. So, so, so I would say if, if you're a Messianic Jew, you've accepted Jesus as your Messiah, good. But let's talk some more and see what that really means. Do you, act, do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand that he's not just the Messiah, but he's also God? And do you understand what he did? And, and, you know, so you'd have to go into more what that exactly means. Yeah, because they would call themselves Jewish still. The Orthodox Jews would say they're not, but they would call, that's why the name is Messianic Jew. They're still considering themselves Jewish. They'd still say it's Judaism, but they're saying they've, they've, Christ is their Messiah. So they would be very steeped still in the Judaism. But you'd really have to get into what have they accepted about Christ. And then you have the other, you have the, you have the Messianic Christians, which is a name that sometimes like the Hebrew Roots Movement goes by. And so you got Messianic Jew and you got Messianic Christian. And uh, so, so the, that's a, very, a movement you have to be really careful about. Uh, the Hebrew roots, basically they're trying to bring all the Jewish stuff into Christianity. So they would say, well, you know, yeah, you have Jesus and you're saved, but, but you need to still follow the Torah. You need to still follow the dietary laws, the Sabbath. So they're going to come and start bringing all those things in. And say that that's part of it. You have to add. You have to add this in, which sounds a lot like Judaizers to me back in the in the Bible, where they're trying to add these add parts of the law back, you know, into Christianity. The things we've been freed from, they're trying to put them back in. So, yeah, yeah. So, so they would argue that Christ didn't end the Mosaic covenant, but he renewed it and he extended it. So we're so they would say you're under the Mosaic covenant still. That's what a Messianic Christian would say, or Hebrew roots. They'd say we're still under that. So, all right, let me pray. And then I'll, I'll hang out for a few minutes too. Well, actually, I got to run to a new member meeting, but I got a couple minutes if you have any other questions. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this time. Uh, Lord, we do just, uh, in light of the news that we've heard lately, uh, we do just pray for Israel, Lord. Uh, we pray for, pray for them, uh, Lord, that you would... Uh, you would just bring peace to that region, that you would bring people to yourself through this. 
um, that, the, that the Jews there, Lord, that they wouldn't think of Christianity as, a, as something that's not for Jews, but Lord, the reality that it's for everyone, that Christ came to die to save people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And Lord, that you are going to restore uh, the nation of Israel uh, one day as, when Christ returns. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.